Well, good morning, church. Last week, we, uh, we started a series called Liar, Liar, Life on Fire. And uh, in this, we're talking about the lies our culture, the enemy, and we tell ourselves. Uh, and Pastor John, he started us off with, uh, with the lie that you should be er. You know, the one telling you, you need to be bigger, better, stronger, smarter, healthier, wealthier, holier. All those things that tell us that you are not enough. And so you guys went into small groups or um, into your homes and, and were thinking and praying and talking about this lie of err. And Pastor John helped us to reorient our perspective toward this idea of, uh, of uh, contentment, toward a, uh, a balance of rest and work, instead of this idea uh, that Ecclesiastes gives us of chasing after wind, right? And so Pastor John even says that, uh, that Jesus was content and he wasn't even sinning. And if, you, if you've read your Bible or gone to a Sunday school before, uh, you may already know the Christian answer to why evil or why sin exists. It's because Adam and Eve, the, the uh, Bible's first people, uh, ate from this, the, ate some fruit, an apple, a pomegranate, an acai berry, if that's your thing, um, from this tree that God forbade them to eat from. And they, they were then kicked out on their butts uh, where there was thievery, murder, school, all the evil stuff that the world has in the world. I know, it's terrible. Um, <laughs> but, and, it, and so if you're not familiar with this story, I highly encourage you to read it. It's totally worth it. Um, and whether you, whether you read it as, as literal truth or, or allegory or poetic literature, it's totally worth the read. It tells us a little bit about who, uh, who God made us to be and who we actually are. And as I've reflected on this story, I think that sin uh, was truly introduced. Uh, and, and, and you might push back on me, and that's totally fine. But I think that sin was truly introduced, not just when Adam and Eve took that bite of that superfruit, but when they understood what they had done. And then instead of running to God, they chose to run away from God. They chose to hide themselves in the bushes and cover themselves with fig leaves. Instead of running to their God who created them and walked with them on a daily basis in the garden, they hid themselves from God. So, here's our guiding question for today. If the result of sin in our world, if the, res if the result of sin in our world today is distance from God, what happens when it feels like God is the one not showing up? What happens when we are pursuing God, but God is the one that seems to be absent from our lives? What happens when contentment seems so far, so distant, that anything but sadness and sorrow or anger or frustration would just be a lie? What do we do as a church when our brothers and sisters are are? Uh, are in a state of mourning? What do, how do we respond to those who are marginalized and experiencing injustice? How do we worship God when he feels so far away? The lie we're addressing today is this lie that you just need to be happy. And I know that, that sounds funny or weird. I may sound funny or weird. I'm sorry. I'm sick. 
so if I give you a hug, go wash your hands or something. Um, but hear me out. I'm not saying that you can't or you shouldn't be happy. That's, that's not what I'm saying here. But is happiness what we were created for? Is happiness the goal? Was Jesus happy? What does this word happiness even mean? I mean, it, it seems like a big or a vague question, but I think it's really important, especially for those of us that are living in the United States. Our, one of the, the documents that found us as a nation, that declares us a nation, uses this term happiness. The Declaration of Independence, maybe one of the most important documents in our nation's history, declares uh, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they, they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So apparently, it is our right to pursue happiness. But again, what does that mean? According to Wikipedia, yes, Wikipedia is one of my sources today, uh, happiness, the term happiness is, uh, the current usage for this word happiness uh, focuses on pleasant, positive emotions having, and having needs satisfied. Whereas in 1776, when the, co- the Declaration of Independence was signed and drafted, the common meaning may have been something closer to prosperity, thriving, well-being. And in either case, we aren't told how to achieve happiness or how to quantify happiness. We're just told that we have the right to pursue happiness. So maybe this is part of the lie. That's what I'm going to posit today. I, I'm, I'm, I really think that this is something that, that our culture has lied to us about. Remember what Pastor John said last week about this idea of chasing after wind. What if pursuing happiness is another way of chasing after wind? Like when you and I constantly want the next thing, the, the next phone or the game or the next relationship or the next friendship or, or the next church, the bigger church, the next, the next, the next. We're constantly wanting things. And, and, and we are, maybe I'll just talk about me right now. I, I am rarely satisfied with what I already have. I, for, for my family, we love board games. We have a, a ton of board games. We have a bookshelf full of board games. And we've played almost all of them at least once. Um, but my favorite game that I've ever played is Risk. How many versions of Risk do you think I have? <laughs> I have six versions of Risk. The exact same game with different like maps or whatever. It, not including the online version. <laughs> like, play, like playing these games with my family and friends brings me happiness for a time. Hanging out with, uh, with, my, with my family brings me happiness for a time. Playing video games brings me happiness for a time. Exercise brings me happiness for a time. Eating brings me happiness for a time. Holding hands with my girlfriend brings me happiness, period. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, not getting in trouble today. But most of the things that bring us happiness do so for a time. 
And then you're back to pursuing happiness. Happiness is something that is fleeting, to use the Ecclesiastes term. Uh, pursuing happiness is like chasing after wind. Uh, I was talking with a friend and a former student of mine this week, and, uh, and we, we, lately we've been talking a lot about depression because it's something that both of us have experienced, and it's, it's kind of a state that he's been in uh, sporadically throughout the, last, uh, throughout the last couple months. And he's telling me about, about his winter break that he's on right now. Uh, and and it, he says that it's been a good week, a really good week, because he's been active. He, he has been constantly moving from one thing to another. He, he hasn't had time to stop and rest and think about the stuff going on in his life. And so, like, this pursuing of happiness, I really think that it's like chasing after wind. So while you have the right to pursue happiness, while you may have that right, do you think that you'll ever actually capture it? So, now that we've defined happiness, or at least given a kind of definition, and I've thoroughly depressed you, let's take a look at, uh, at Matthew 27, 46. Uh, this is, this is the, la- the last words, the last sentence that Jesus utters before he, he dies. I know, more happy, right? Um, at about 3 p.m., Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My first thought when reading this is, this does not sound like the words of a happy dude. Are, and, and there are people who read this passage and think that, uh, that Jesus was just pretending to feel forsaken, to be abandoned by God, because they, they have a valid point. Like, Jesus is God. How can he be separated? How can he be abandoned from himself? And then there's others who read this, and they say, well, Jesus, like the Father, temporarily abandoned Jesus because he needed to experience the fullness of the cross as a punishment for our sin." And these are great, like, these hit on something that are important, and, and we can talk about this all we want, but I think the, the most important part of this passage, for me at least, is that Jesus is quoting Scripture. He is quoting a psalm of lament, which just means it's a, a Jewish song of sadness, of sorrow, a petition begging God uh, to show up, to save, to show mercy, to execute justice. And this psalm was written hundreds of years before Jesus was, was even born. See, I'm fascinated by this book of psalms, particularly the psalms of lament. See, the, this, this genre of super depressing poetry that sounds like it's being written by uh, an emo, like, 13-year-old. Uh, the, this, this genre that's super depressing, get this, it makes up 30% of the book of psalms. It makes up 30% of this book of the Bible. And then it has another book called Lamentations, a book that is all about lamenting to God. And Jesus' final words echo this one psalm, this one verse from Psalm 22, which begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning, Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, 
but find no rest. The book of Psalms was a Jewish hymn book. So if you guys remember like those, those hymnals that used to be in the back of pews, uh, uh, I had them when I was growing up in a, and I, I started going to a Presbyterian church. We always had the hymnals. This is what the book of Psalms was. There are 150 Psalms. They're each categorized into, into seven different categories. And the Psalm of Lament is one of these categories, again, that shows up a third of the time. It is the single most common category in the, in the book of Psalms. And so each type of psalm is appropriate at different points in, in life or in, throughout the year. They're, they're all used by the Jewish synagogues or by the Jewish worshipers. But they are all used for one purpose. That is to worship God. And get this. This is fascinating. Out of, out of the 150, again, I'm just going to repeat this. Out of the 150 psalms, there are 67 that are psalms of lament. That, that's more than a third. And these psalms are just where the Jewish people would cry out to God, begging him to show up, to show them mercy, to save them, to execute justice, and even to avenge them. I think one of the reasons that we don't hear the psalm, psalms of lament as often in the church today is because they are very uncomfortable to read. If you spent time in the psalms, uh, just reading through the whole book, you'll notice that there are psalms, like, they're, they're very uncomfortable to, you, to use in prayer or to There's often violence or prayers for violence. And so we have to wonder, like, what do we do with, with the violence in these psalms? And that's a sermon for a whole other time. But we have to wonder, like, these are really uncomfortable. I mean, some of these psalms were uh, written for individual Laments, like when King David's son Absalom died in, in a war against his father. And, and then others were written uh, during a time of national tribulation, of, of, of difficulty, of strife. Uh, like when the Babylonians uh, sacked the city of Jerusalem, killing or enslaving almost the entire population, and then burning down the temple of God. It's heavy. It, 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 they're violent. And the reaction is violent, too. And this is why I love them so much. They're, they're uncomfortable. They're hard. They, uh, they cry out to God. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I hear myself crying out the same exact thing. I know you won't believe it, but in junior high and high school, uh, I was a real dweeb. Um, I know, unbelievable, right? <laughs> uh, I, I had this, this thing called the bullet. It was a bowl cut and a mullet at the same time. You don't see a picture because I burned them all. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, I was super unpopular. Um, I, I was unpopular, and I, like, for years of my life, I struggled with depression. Um, see, my parents got divorced when I was in uh, when I was in eighth grade, but before that, they went through a period of separation and then getting back together and then divorce again, uh, or in, then actual divorce. And I, 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 I was broken. Um, and then throw that onto a kid who's angry literally all the time, who doesn't fit in with either the white kids or the Asians at school because I'm neither. Uh, like, I'm not either of them fully. 
I'm not enough white. I'm not enough Asian. And then you toss that on top of a kid who's also got a bowl cut and a mullet. <laughs> it's a bad situation, I know. Um, and so for eight years of my life, I struggled with, uh, with episodes of depression and thoughts of suicide. And, and between my eighth grade and freshman year of high school, uh, I was invited to, to a youth group by my only friend, uh, Mr. Stevens, who was my history teacher. Uh, and I started attending this youth group where, because it was the only place I could get away from, uh, from my house, for, from both houses, for two hours out of the week. And, and I, I would go, I kept going because it was the only place that I didn't feel put down. I wasn't rejected. I wasn't uh, called dirty Asian because I'm Filipino and darker than most. It was also a place that I could get away from my home. And uh, over, the, over the course of the next year, I became increasingly involved in, in this youth group. I went to Sunday school. I even went on a mission trip. And while I wouldn't have considered myself a Christian, church became a, an important and a healing part of my life until it went through a, a split, until the lead pastor and the board had a, uh, decided to divide themselves in a very dramatic way. And it split a once thriving church of four services that was constantly packed with standing room only, and it split that in half. And uh, like this church that represented stability to this kid that desperately needed and wanted some form of stability in his life started going through its own nasty and really messy divorce. And so I was done. I was out. I was over the whole Jesus thing. When I needed him, he disappeared. Switching gears, uh, when we read the book of Psalms, one of the most powerful things to me is that they were written by Jewish people two and a half thousand years ago. And they are still relevant to us today, or at least they can be. Maybe they don't use the same language, the same vocabulary that we use today. Maybe the situations aren't exactly the same. They don't line up with how we're, uh, with everything that we're going through. But the Psalms are more about communicating to God who we are, how we feel, what we, what we think, where we're at, what we need. And so much of Scripture is, is about G God talking to us, which is super important. Don't get me wrong. Super important. We need to hear what God has to say to us. But the Psalms are unique because they are more about, what, about our words to God than just his words to us. So it gives us a vocabulary. So when we read this passage, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This isn't just some theological uh, point that we're going to cut out and exegete and study. This is, we are reading the cry and despair of a man whose home was destroyed. We're reading the, the cries of despair of a woman who has lost or uh, has a dying child. We're reading the, the most extreme, most anguished expression 
of an innocent man hanging on a tree alongside thieves and murderers. Without the Psalms, and specifically without the laments, we miss out on our deepest connection with God. Let me say that again. Without the laments, without the Psalms, specifically without the laments, we miss out on the most, the deepest connection with God. Walter Brueggemann, a uh, really well-known and well-respected Bible scholar, he says, reading the psalm, regarding the Psalms, nowhere but with God does Israel vent its greatest doubt, its bitterest anger, or its bitterest resentment, its deepest anger. Israel knows that one need not fake it or be polite and pretend in the divine presence, nor need one face the hurts alone. The psalmist doesn't hold back. Instead, they, they pour out their fears, their doubts, their anger, their frustrations with God. Without the laments, we miss out on our deepest connection with God. There's some of us here today that are, that are hurting. There's some of us here today that are just pissed at God. I have a friend, uh, when I was working at a camp, and she came back uh, to our staffing. She had been gone for about an hour, and we asked her where, where she had been, and she just, she goes, I was just yelling at God. I was angry. We, the church, Big C, have done such a good job of telling each other that you shouldn't worry just trust that God is, is in control, that everything will be A-OK, that God has a plan to stay positive, to just keep swimming. We, we've, done, we've said this and heard this so much that many of us have forgotten how to cry out to God. We've forgotten how to trust and open up to each other about what's really going on in our lives. We've forgotten how to lament. We come to church and sing, joy, 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 but the words sound really hollow coming from our lips. We show up at small group and we we talk about the promotion that we just got at work, but not about the miscarriage. We talk about our kid who is going to graduate summa cum laude, but not about our divorce that's just pending. We are really comfortable coming in and singing joy, 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 But what we really want to be singing is, why, why, why? Why have you forsaken me? But for a long time, our culture has valued positivity and displays of happiness over genuine hurt, sadness, and anger. How often have you heard or been called, uh, heard someone called or been called a wimp or a pansy or Uh, a snowflake, because you are heartbroken over a breakup, because you are upset over a friend's betrayal, because uh, you are afraid of losing your job, or uh, your heart hurts for those who are poor and vulnerable. You're angry about experiencing the, uh, experiencing hatred based on the color of your skin or the slant of your eyes. The lie our culture tells us is that you need to shut up with your complaints and be happy. Stop crying. 
It's not that bad. It'll be okay. The universe will make everything work out. Oprah is giving away free cars, so just trust in that. Whatever you trust in, it's going to be okay. Just be happy. Our culture is totally good with us chasing after wind. It's totally good with us pursuing happiness and chasing after that wind because it, it's comfortable. It lines their pockets. It keeps the church from doing and being who we are meant to be. From caring for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the resident alien. From loving God and loving others. Our culture tells us to chase after happiness so we, f- we lose focus of the things that the church is, supposed to, is called to do. It's called to be. So, church, what do we do with this? I think we worship. I, I think we bring our sadness, our hurts, our anger to God. But I think we do that in the context of worship. Get this. The psalms of lament, these songs of hurt, of anger, of sadness, of discontent, are worshipful. They are used in the scriptures as forms of worship. The psalm of lament, this song that Jesus quoted when he was dying, was written to express hurt and frustration, express his anger and sadness. Let God know that I don't see you here. Their their purpose is to draw God's attention to his people, cause him to remember his people and his promise. In Psalm uh, 22, verse 9 and 10, it says, Yet it was you who took me from the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Sorry. The worshiper does this because we have already seen that they, that they, uh, that they feel, or, uh, feel that they have been abandoned by God. And they're trying to call him, remember who your people are. Remember who we are. And they, because they know that they need God not only to thrive, but to survive. Get this. This, is, this happens just one verse later. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no, no one to help. But you, O Lord, do not be far away. O my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. The worshiper is clearly in distress. They don't have power or authority, and they are pitted against an enemy that they know they cannot defeat. They are forced to rely on God entirely for their salvation, for mercy, for justice. And so they approach him with their songs of worship, not just of praise, but of lament, of saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why aren't you here? I need you. So, hear me, church. I'm not saying that you should create something to be sad or angry about. If you're not sad, angry, upset, or lamenting anything right now, awesome. Uh, Like, great. My message for you today is allow those of us who are lamenting to lament. 
allow those of us who need to cry out to God to actually cry out. In fact, my message for you today is come alongside us. Bow before us at the altar. Kneel down with us. Hold our hand and cry out to God, my God, my God, where are you? Why do they not see you in their life right now? For those of you who are lamenting, please hear me. This is also not a call for, not a call for you to post all your woes on Facebook. It's not a call for you to just go take to the streets and protest. And maybe that becomes a part of your process. But, but, lament as worship occurs in the worshiping community. It happens in the church. If, if you need to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you need to cry out, where are you? Living Spring is a place where you can belong. Lament is an act of worship. And to separate it from the fabric of our church is to break God's heart. He wants you to approach him with your laments, with your anger, with your frustration, with your hurts. So, as the worship team comes back up, I want to finish on, uh, on this thought. I think that Jesus echoed these words as he died, this verse, because he fully identified with us in our distance from God. I, I think that it's not just because he had to take our punishment, but because he reached into the deepest depths of hell itself to draw us to closer, to reel us back in, to give us his eternal presence. I think that Jesus cried out this lament because he genuinely felt uh, that he was abandoned, but because, also because he wanted us to know that he is with us in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our pain and suffering, in the midst of our darkest moments, he is with us and he's not uncomfortable with us being there.